Hello. Hey. Welcome to Ergo. You are here. I'm Kiss. I am Diamond. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. How you feeling? I'm all right. I just, as I was saying what we do here, I cracked my back, which felt really, really nice. Oh, that's the best. Yeah. I don't know if it'll show up on the audio, but it felt really good. Hey, people. Crack your back. <laughs> your, your spine is important. Take care of yourself. <laughs> How about you, Dean? I'm feeling pretty good. How are your joints? My joints, my joints are straight. My good. joints are decent. I'm glad. I, I've, I've been really working on my ankle flexibility. Recently. <laughs> That's very specific. <laughs> it's the truth, though. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm decent. Here, here are the two understated undercurrents of our show. Daniel learns to dress. And Damon learns to take care of very specific parts of his immune system and body. <laughs> Those are the two things that have been happening over these four years that we don't talk about enough. Um, but what we do talk about today in our wonderful conversation is ideas around journalism, objectivity, how we can reshape acts of journalism and the industry to better serve the work of liberation. We have the incredible Lewis Wallace here. They're coming through Chicago on tour in support of their new book, the View from Somewhere. They also have a podcast that works hand-in-hand hand with the book. It's incredible. For those who don't know, they were based in Chicago for a long time. You'll get the whole kind of story doing some work with Project Nia and Miriam Kaba. And then they ended up being a audio journalist through BEZ and then WYSO in Yellow Springs. And then ended up at Marketplace in New York City where they got fired for publishing a blog post that basically said that Donald Trump benefits from white supremacy and that journalists need to address this moment with that understanding. So we talk about that moment of firing, the implications, the lessons that were taught that then had to be unlearned, and how do we tell each other's stories better? Yeah, it, it was a great conversation for us because it was certainly close to home. We've we've kind of fashioned ourselves as anti-journalists, or just at least non-journalists. <laughs> no, I would say I would say more You're anti. anti. Yeah, I, I think we we say we are approaching the same work from an opposing mm. framework, mm -hmm. and, and we've intentionally created like theory and praxis out of critiquing some of yeah. the norms of no, journalism. That's true. Uh, and we've gone around trying to teach these things, and sometimes we wonder if we're being inappropriate. But we've been working more and more to like talk to other people who are having these thoughts. Uh, so it was good to feel kindred and feel like, you know, there is support to the claim that we're trying to make in the world. Also, bring us to your spot. Oh, yeah. No, we'll, we'll come talk about this where you yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your campus, your, your business, your organization. Your newsroom. Your community space. Bring you it can go out. book us uh, at ergoradio.com slash booking. Email contact at ergoradio.com and we will make that happen. Buy your Ergo tea. Like, subscribe, comment, rate, review on our Apple podcast feed and anywhere you listen to podcasts. We have some events coming up in the next couple months, so keep an ear out for that. Make sure you get your copy of the book from your local independent bookseller, uh, the library, or if necessary, Amazon.com. Hmm. See what I did there? Yeah. All right. Without further ado, let's get to our conversation with the one, the only, Lewis Wallace. Yeah. All right. Shall we do a thing? We shall. I feel like when Charles made Dwight put on long sleeve shirts. <laughs> Are you an Office fan? Oh, you know, I've hardly seen it. Okay. I've seen it, but like not, not enough not, to not, be not, like not. in yeah, the now. Yeah, yeah. It was my lullaby music the last like two or three three years. I'll just mm -hmm. go to sleep with it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Netflix I have a game. Weird thing about me where that for me is just exclusively TV shows that take place in the White House. 
<laughs> so like I, right. just, I do West Wing. I loved Veep. Mm-hmm. I was okay. really into what's it called? House of Cards. Okay, okay. Now I'm on. Uh, and in Kiefer Sutherland from either <laughs> yes, side of the aisle. That's that's what I was just going to say. <laughs> um, what is this show called that I'm watching now? The uh, Designated Survivor. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So that's Alternate my, Reality 24. That's my lullaby. That's <laughs> what I call stuff. that show. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. The good news is you're not going to run out. They keep making shows that take place in the White House. Yeah, in or around. So I also do Madam Secretary and a couple of other like <laughs> offshoots, but that is it. That's, that's so my funny. whole thing. How did that become your thing? I don't know. I think I just like figured out. It was like, it's all very unreal seeming mm-hmm. and eerily comforting in a propagandistic kind of way. <laughs> was, was, was it a, like, did you... When did you consciously realize you're watching all these White House shows? Did you like oh, seek yeah. them out? I think it was probably in season five of Scandal. <laughs> <laughs> I need more of this. <laughs> That's funny. I, need to, I see my investments. I can't put all my eggs in this basket. This train's going to end some point. Yeah. <laughs> there is something comforting about like, because on those shows, the people who know what they're doing know what they're doing. And then there's people who don't. But there's always someone competent on those shows. Yeah, someone really one competent yeah. and well-intentioned and like, yeah. who's like, this Secretary of yeah. State, Super the president. Yeah, yeah. They're like a legitimately good person with like <laughs> deep thoughts and feelings and stuff. Yeah. Understand the nuance, <laughs> thinking through the consequences. So, yeah. it's, so it's fiction, <laughs> right? Very fictional. We have a very special guest in the studio with us today: writer, journalist, thinker, Chicago-connected human. Lewis Wallace is here. Bra, 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 bra. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, a, a, a puppy. That's new. Was it? Was that a puppy for you? It sounded like a puppy to me. What did it sound like to you? It did is that to be interpreted like by the audience. Yeah, it was like a little cute little bark. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So before we get to our first question, here's the first question before the first question. If you could have any animal noise be your walk-up music, what animal would you choose? Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, I'm really into the crickets and grasshoppers that I can hear from my home in North Carolina, like grass-dwelling animals with just like pretty sounds. So Mm. something in that genre, like a a chill grass-dweller. Yeah, I like that. Crickets get a bad rap when it comes to their sound. Like, because usually it's used for like when someone is ineffective in what they're saying. Oh, but yeah. It's kind of a nice feedback to receive. You a know? stand in for silence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Spoken like someone who's had to do something with some <laughs> silence in a recording. All right, let's start where we start. In this time. That's your all over the place. I do a little, arm, a little arm swell. But also thing. when you get deep in your, your animal noise game. That's when, that's when I know. <laughs> you're going to have to pull yeah, me back yeah, today. Yeah, 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 you're loose. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back on track. In this time, in this moment, this season, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Wow, that's a great question. So I am on this tour Mm -hmm. right now talking about my book, The View From Somewhere, and my podcast, The View From Somewhere, which are both about the myth of journalistic objectivity, but also about the possibilities of what journalism can be or could be. Hmm. Um, Journalism as activism and journalism as something that drives change in the world. And so how the world is treating me right now, I think... I'm getting a lot of uh, inspiration from being on the road, talking to people about their visions for journalism and storytelling and just what's possible. In a way, it's a nice respite from just sort of taking in um, news and, you know, producing stuff Mm -hmm. to be just in conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
right up our alley. Yeah, also. there's so many things here <laughs> that are like pivotal to one, our practice, but then also just conversations that we have probably more off mic than on. So much of what you've done is telling the story of how you got to the point of writing this book. And uh, I don't think we necessarily need to, first of all, people should just buy the book and listen to the podcast to, to break all that down. But in the telling of that story of, uh, you know, the last few years of your life, what are the pieces that are like emerging for you now that you're surprised at how impactful they've been? There's a few things. I think one is that, so the, you know, the nutshell recap of my story is that mm -hmm. right after Donald Trump was inaugurated, I was working at a national radio show marketplace and I wrote this blog post critiquing objectivity and talking about how we needed to stand up as journalists, stand up against white supremacy and transphobia. And um, for writing that blog post and refusing to take it down, I was fired. And I'd been working in mainstream public radio for about five years at that point. So um, significant moments that I've kind of held on to that I didn't realize their significance, that there were a bunch of them. I think one was actually a moment in 2016 when I covered a Trump rally in Ohio. I was working for a small public radio station in Southwest Ohio. And I don't know if y'all remember, you probably do if you were here in Chicago, Trump was supposed to speak in Chicago yeah. during the um, primaries. You remember clearly. And <laughs> that whole end came to UIC, I think it yeah, was, yeah. right? Yeah. And the rally got shut down by yeah. protesters, basically. Yep. And I remember seeing that all on Twitter and stuff, and everyone was like, yeah, we shut this down. And then the next morning, he flew to Dayton, Ohio, and uh, I was covering that for NPR. So he was able to get his smoke off. <laughs> yeah, for morning edition. And so... I was just like doing my job. I was very much in the mindset of I'm a public radio reporter. It's my job to come out here and, you know, cover this. And so we got there at five o'clock in the morning and talked to Trump supporters who were all lined up, thousands of people, you know, lined up to get in when it opened at nine. And then I was inside of the rally and he, you know, rolled up his Trump airplane and got off the plane and did the did the wave. And that was the day when um, somebody rushed the stage mm -hmm. And there was this kind of viral bite of Trump, like ducking, mm -hmm. like looking all like scared mm -hmm, and upset. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it was like this college student, theater student who wanted to just grab the mic and say, like, Trump's a racist or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he didn't ever get to the mic, but he was charged with a felony. So anyway, it was just like a, a wild and like deeply, deeply upsetting encounter experience for me because I hadn't really known that much about what Trump was about. And then in the rally, during the rally, I saw the way that he just whipped up this racist fervor yeah. amongst people who were, these were the people that I like covered in my job. You know, they were just like, you know, vast majority white, normal people, basically. With a, with a heavy air quote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Like pe people who just live in the suburbs of Dayton, Ohio and like go to work every day and whatever, you know, and I was an economic reporter. I talk to all kinds of people all the time. And it, and so just seeing the relationship between the kind of like latent racism and racial resentment and what people were picking up from Fox News and wherever else and then how Trump sort of whipped that up was really bone-chillingly scary. <laughs> like I felt like I was at a white supremacist rally, you know. And then I went on Morning Edition and they were asking me about like security, like, I, you know, how much like – security is there at the protest today given what happened in Chicago last night. Yeah, like da, this da, 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 da. is so far from the story. <laughs> so far from yeah. the story. And I tried to talk about the protesters and whatever, but the I was sort of right in the middle of this like huge gap between what I saw was like really happening and then what was being reported. And mm. it was like my voice, you know, <laughs> on Morning Edition reporting it. Yeah. And at the time, I think I just, I felt a lot of... Um, 
panic and fear, but I had no idea how that fit into sort of my work as a journalist or what I could possibly do or, or bring. And so that was a pivotal moment. And a few months after that, I moved to New York for this new job and, yeah. um, you know, and then Trump was elected and it all sort of happened from there. And, but I don't think I realized the extent to which that day of the Trump rally yeah. was like a turning point in terms of like me witnessing what was to come and yeah. also witnessing how dire the gap was going to be between what was really happening and how the media was covering it. Hmm. Before we like keep going in the story, I, I want to go deeper on one piece, one like where you were in the moment and then get some retrospect. I'm, I'm really intrigued by this idea of air quote normalcy, you know, the fear and the sobering and like the 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 saddening nature of let's call it an uprising, like public fascist white supremacist performance, whatever, whatever this Trump phenomenon is. But for me, there was nothing surprising about it. And so the language of like, I thought these to be normal people. I, I just want you to like go deeper into like what that meant for you at the time. And like in retrospect, how are you looking at this so-called normalcy? Yeah, totally. So I think it was like, pulling back a curtain yeah. on the white people that I covered in my job as an economics reporter to where with just a little bit of nudging or, or encouragement, they would suddenly be like shaking their fists mm -hmm. at a what was essentially a white supremacist rally, right? One of the most notable examples that I wrote about in the book was that I had been at a trailer park a few weeks before that, knocking on doors. And the reason I was there was because the trailer park had been without running water mm. on and off for a long time. And it turned out that mobile home parks all over the country have problems with water access. It's like a huge problem. But because they're often on their own separate water system, it'll be just like a few people, you know, a few yeah. hundred homes here, a few hundred homes there, mm. whatever. It's not seen as like... It's not seen as a systemic yeah. issue, but in a sense it is because you have these mobile home park owners who are landlords who also run the water systems. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I was doing a story about that for Marketplace and I was knocking on people's doors in the trailer park to like find out how they were coping with not having running water. Yeah. And this guy came to the door. It was like noon. He was kind of like a little bit drunk in his boxer shorts with Fox News like blaring in the background. And he didn't want to talk to me, but he was, you know, he was like, just like fine and glad that I was doing the story, whatever. And I ran into him at the Trump rally. Mm -hmm. You know, he recognized me because I'm like the transsexual with the microphone and like not hard to uh, pick out of a crowd. Um, and I, I sort of did a double take and then I was like, oh, that's the guy from the trailer park. But the feeling I had gotten about him when I had knocked on his door and he came to the door and whatever is like, this is not a guy who like, gets involved, right? He didn't even want to talk about the lack of water in his yeah. own, you That's know? That's the most, like, embodied challenge, yeah. right? That's not a large-scale political question. Right. But Trump had gotten him to mm. get involved and, like, show up at something. Yeah. And that made me feel really, really, really worried about Trump's power to, like, activate mm -hmm. these, as you said, like, quote-unquote normal mm -hmm. people who, like, just below the surface are ready to be activated around racism and racial resentment. And seeing that activation, like, in action mm, was right like, on. oh, he feels really... And I was like... I had thought the rally was the most bone-chilling thing. And I was like, what did you think of it? And he was like, it was great. Trump just, like, says stuff that no one else will say. Hmm. He was so happy. He felt so excited. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's speaking to you so effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That just 
scared me. (laughs) So in that gap that you're talking about between what you saw as what needed to be told and what was being told, and you said kind of this feeling of like, I don't know how to connect these or they felt separate. Before you stepped into this role formally as a radio journalist, I, I know that you did organizing work here in Chicago and were involved in all kinds of things where, you know, a lot of the conversations we see are about how do you embody and understand the implications of these things on people and have that be informed in your work. So it's not just like, well, this is what I do when I go to the office and then I have the rest of my life. It's like, no, how do we understand this in relation to our everyday? So where did that kind of compartmentalization come up? Was that in the journalism training? Yeah, so I can tell a story about that that takes place in in Chicago. So I, I lived here for a bunch of years working on a number of different sort of solidarity projects. Mm-hmm. I co-founded the Chicago Child Care Collective with a bunch mm-hmm. of people. Was the, it Chichico? Chichico. Oh, shout yeah. out to Chichico. Yeah, Chichico uh, is the best. Uh, yeah. um, and, uh, I love Chichico. <laughs> That's a quality abbreviation as yeah, well. Yeah, they show up. Yeah, yeah. well, we were like sitting, <laughs> I remember Chichico, I'll just tell a little side story yeah. about Chichico. We were like, what are we going to call this new organization that is a collective of child care providers in Chicago? Um, <laughs> and we couldn't think of anything, couldn't think of anything. And then B. Lowe, who is a longtime um, local organizer here, mostly working on immigration issues was like, what about Chicago Child Care Collective? And we call it Chichico. And we all like laughed, like, that's a funny, silly thing. <laughs> and then it just like stuck, you know, yeah. it stuck so hard that we're, and now like you're like, Chichico, of course, that's what it is. But I remember in the moment we were, it was not obvious to us that we should call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so for those who don't know, like it's, it's not just child care at large. It's mostly, or my proximity to it has been in like, places of activation, whether it's, you know, not really a protest, but like a meeting or event or something where they're going to be intergenerational and and understanding that there are young children in our community, right? And so it is almost an assumption of privilege that, oh, I can just leave my kids somewhere. And so for some people, you know, childcare is the most urgent need. For a lot of Let Us Breathe breathing room events, Chichico has held down, had a section, and like the young people are tended to with like so much energy and love, Right. And and are a part of the larger event as well. So it's not just like a complete a room, siphoning yeah. off. But sometimes it could. Sometimes you need your own room to just, you know, yeah. go hammer. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's been beautiful. And, and, you know, they've shown up in really, really great ways. Mm. So. so that was, that was one that entry legacy. point for sure. <laughs> um, so I was working with Chichico and then with Project NIA, which mm-hmm. is a prison abolition organization. I was the Shout volunteer coordinator for a long time. And it was actually Miriam Kaba who like wrote my recommendation letter for a fellowship at WBEZ called the Mm. Pritzker Fellowship that Mm. was for community organizers to like come in and spend nine months doing a paid training program learning how to do radio journalism basically so yes shout out to Miriam she was a mentor and friend and also like helped me sort of move from working as a barista to working as a radio (laughs) reporter and shout out to all the baristas too. Um, I just like, it was a really important turning point in my life to get this fellowship at WBEZ. And so I showed up on my first day. Um, The other fellow, Adriana Cardona Magigad is still around, a really amazing um, Latina journalist. And the two of us met all the people in the station and saw Mel Ballara doing her All Things Considered broadcast <laughs> and like watched the live shows throughout the day. Had that moment where you saw what someone whose voice you knew looked like and you're like, that's not what I pictured. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was also like, this is awesome and so exciting. And I had no idea how a radio station 
worked and you know I'd been just like doing my grassroots activism yeah. thing and doing my coffee slinging and whatever um and that day I was like I need to be a radio reporter like mm. this is awesome it was one of the best days of my life mm. and then a few days later I had to sit down with the managing editor who was like you need to stop doing all of your activism for the period of time that you work here at WBEZ Whew. and so the compartmentalization that right. was your question yeah. was absolutely a requirement of the job mm. it was like no more Twitter no more Facebook no more you know but not just Twitter Facebook like no more showing up at protests no more Chichico no yeah. more Project Mia whatever so, so help us be nuanced because if you don't we can just like lampoon right like because that framing is kind of like ridiculous to me <laughs> or unacceptable uh, but I imagine there has to be some well intended nature to the to, to those type of regulations what is like the nuanced complication of, of why that's understandable? Because it sounds absurd. For sure. So I talk about this a lot in the book that, you know, there the is book, such people. a thing. Yeah, just, just read the book. I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. It was very nice meeting you. Having you. <laughs> that would actually be a really funny podcast. Just yeah. called Read the Book. Just, it's just the name of the person and them they, saying, they just read the book. Say hello. <laughs> <laughs> so conflicts of interest in journalism mm -hmm. are real, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's hard to write about your mom <laughs> like in a fair way where you're not worried about what your mom is going to think of it or whatever I mean I have written about my mom I include my mom in quite a bit of my work so but I know that it's hard um, to and that sure as hell isn't objective <laughs> <laughs> right and it's yeah. not objective and Shout so yeah or like if you're receiving money from somebody and then mm. you're reporting on them right okay. like that's a real conflict of interest okay. um, WBEZ and most public radio or public media organizations organizations um, strive to avoid both real and perceived conflicts of interest. And so I think where stuff gets really funky and off base is in the area around perceived conflicts of interest, mm. right? That like a real conflict of interest, the only person who can sort of know for sure what that is, is the reporter. Mm. And then you have two choices, like take the reporter off the story don't do that story where you have a conflict of interest or disclose what it is Be and do the best that you can right. about what that is. But perceived conflicts of interest have often been interpreted in this sort of broader way that like there's a very long um, history of that concept being deployed against marginalized people hmm. and communities. So um, gay people for the longest couldn't work in a newsroom and be out at all and then when it started to be possible for gay people to be out in newsrooms they weren't allowed to report on gay issues because of the perceived conflict of interest which of course straight people have terrible views on gay issues um, <laughs> also straight people cover straight people all the time right and straight people um, I mean straight people don't across the board have terrible views but you see what I'm getting yeah, at, yeah, yeah. that like in 1985 but, but not doing well though yeah <laughs> In 1985, there was a lot of homophobic coverage yeah. of gay people. I mean, like the New York Times wouldn't put gay on their mm. pages until 1989 or 90. Um, it was a homosexual uh, movement and homosexual activists and so on. And so and gay reporters could be fired for being out as being gay and also could be taken off the story. Right. And so there's this long history of perceived conflict of interest being deployed against um, people who come from outsider, marginalized, or oppressed perspectives. Right. I found that when I started working at WBEZ, uh, 
very ironic, right? Because I was brought in because of my community right. work, you know, working on queer and trans liberation and prison abolition, and then basically told you need to stop doing any of that work outside yeah. of the station. And you also, you can't report on anything related to that. So I became um, the environmental reporter for WBEZ um, because of the lack of perceived conflicts of interest that I had in on environmental issues. Of course, I have a lot of really strong views right. on environmental issues and I wouldn't consider myself an unbiased person in that area. <laughs> but the but bias it was just wasn't, like yeah. a safe place to go where there wouldn't be as much perceived bias. It's so, I'm it's getting like, infuriated. It's like a, <laughs> I, I'm not very articulate about it, but I'm, this is upsetting. It's like if someone was like really, really good at building houses and they were like, you're a really good house builder. Here's a chemistry set. <laughs> it's like, well, the skill, like I can do this, but the reason you brought me here was because I built a good house. Talk about your anger, David. <laughs> I don't know. I want to ask questions. It's not like, it's not about me. A venting session. Uh, but just, just all of the embedded conflicts of interest in institutional journalism and the assumptions made all the time. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to soapbox so, it. But so let's, let's... Yeah, please. <laughs> We're going to get each other yeah, through yeah. this one. I don't know why it feels harder than you. So in understanding that framing of conflict of interest or perceived conflict of interest, were you then seeing also the institutional conflicts of interest that weren't being addressed? That's a leading question for you. <laughs> well, no, I wasn't. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was just like, I'll do whatever you want me to do. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't like, that's messed up because I know that you all get money from such and such and whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was just, and WBZ is like doing amazing work and there's tons of amazing reporters and I was learning so much and yeah, yeah. I had a great experience there. But with without really realizing it, just sort of signed on to this new framework in which I had to hide my political commitments from mm. the public. And I still did some behind the scenes work, you know, with Project Nia and with Black and Pink, which is another yeah, prison abolition organization over the years, but like very, very behind the scenes, you know, stuff that my name would never be associated with mm. publicly just to avoid basically losing my job yeah. or losing my platform or whatever. Um, so it really wasn't until... You know, I left BZ for WYSO in Yale Springs, Ohio, and then from there to Marketplace in New York. And it wasn't until after I got fired that I was able to and, and sort of let myself stop compartmentalizing hmm. and like stand back and sort of say, that is really messed up, you know, hmm. that like. I was asked as a trans person to remove myself from trans activism and trans advocacy in order to be a journalist. But of course, there's no such thing as a trans journalist without trans activism and right. advocacy. Like, And I feel very acutely aware of that because there haven't even been trans journalists that you or I would know about until the last few years. And I came out as trans in around the year 2000, 2001, yeah. you know, when to be an out trans journalist was like a non-existent <laughs> thing. Um, <laughs> there were people for yeah. sure, right? Yeah. But not very many and they weren't very out because it was dangerous. You can still be fired in a majority of states just for being trans, being out as trans. You know, that is completely legal in the state that I live in. <laughs> um, I wasn't able to really connect with my own like frustration about that um, and about the sort of in institutional hypocrisy yeah. until after I got fired and started to work on writing this book and then dug into all this research yeah. about how many other instances of this kind of thing there had been and, and how many different sort of voices have been silenced under this same framework. Yeah. I, I guess it's about defining what interest means before we start getting into the conflicts of it. Because I think why, <laughs> I, why I'm so, I'm, I'm like almost debilitated right now because I want to be 
the facilitator of the conversation, but privileged interests are invisibilized. Right. They're just seen as norm or what is. And so from the logic of what you described, Americans should not talk about war. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. because that is in our interest. Um, <laughs> white people should not talk about police killing black people, right? Like, because that is then in your interest. And, and mm-hmm. then there is no, there's no journalism, right? Like, everybody has interest. There is no information. And so, yeah, just thinking about white supremacy and just thinking about all the harm. And, and you know, I know we'll, we'll get into, like, the the BLM epoch of how that was a direct, like, you know, a lot of my organizing came from this information is toxic and, and not just wrong. It is an active agent of the harm, right? It is it is an accomplice, not just, like, a passive mistake and so yeah that, that's why i think it's like getting personal of like yeah. you know you know we can talk about ida b wells and lynch you know all all, all of the the things but yeah I, I didn't expect i knew what we were about to talk about and like <laughs> we've been talking about this for three or four years but for some reason right now i'm like personally <laughs> upset just hearing those sentences quoted for some reason yeah not for some for reason sure. for these reasons <laughs> for these reasons <laughs> um a, a couple of uh there's a couple of people I want to sort of quote or cite in response to what you just said. One is um Nicole Hannah Jones, yeah. who works for the New York Times magazine, uh, was a guest on our podcast recently. And one of the things that she talked about when we interviewed her was she was basically like all journalists are activists, right? But some journalists, in particular white journalists, are activists for the status quo, mm-hmm. right? Activists for maintaining things the way that they are. Um, and related to that, um, the podcast producer, Ramona Martinez, has uh, said something to me when I first met her that um, I often quote, which is objectivity is the ideology of the status quo. And so I think that's all like very related in terms of, right, like white people reporting quote unquote objectively on race is impossible. But the performance of that, what that ends up meaning is um, reporting sort of in favor of keeping things the way that they are, which was very much like something that I was reckoning with during the period that I was covering Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And Black Lives Matter was like, actively pushing to shift the way that black life was being covered and sort of exposing the bias in newsrooms, in white-run newsrooms. And and for me as a white person, like, I saw my own bias in new ways during that time period because of how Black Lives Matter was shifting the frame and sort of saying to not report on this or, like you're saying, to report on it in these, like, inaccurate and harmful ways is activism, right? It is activism for the status quo and white supremacy and keeping things the way that they are. Hmm. One of the things in that portion of the book that you do, I think, really kind of in a way that I've never read before, is the vulnerable way that you place yourself and your contradictions and your challenges on the page. And it is so different from this, like, faux objectivity. Like, it is modeling it in practice of, like, here's who I am. Here's how this works in my brain and in my body and in my day-to-day life. Before we get to like what the pivots of those moments were, as the writer in retrospect of this book, how did it feel to step outside of that other mode of communication and put yourself on the page in this way? I had to push myself a lot after the years of working in quote-unquote objective journalism. (laughs) And of course, I don't believe in objectivity, but I had gotten very good at the performance of it, right? Mm -hmm. Just like... Which is probably the case for a lot of people doing this work. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I can attest. I know a lot of people who do this work who secretly don't believe in (laughs) objectivity. Um, (laughs) And they send me emails. Um, (laughs) And they say that. What what are are their names, emails, and social (laughs) securities? 
the, I'm, uh, I'm not at liberty to say. <laughs> I am not at liberty to say, but Watch yeah. me sing. I'm kidding. That's a joke. I wanted that out. Go ahead. Where were we? What was I supposed to Putting yourself on the page in that oh, way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had been working in this quote-unquote objective frame where you got to pretend that you weren't a part of the story. Hmm. And the voice was very much like third person. You know, I'm talking about other people's stuff. Coming back around to my own sort of vulnerable personal stories, I knew that I needed to do that. And I was really scared to hmm. do that. Hmm. Intimidated by the process of self-reflection that it would require and intimidated by putting that stuff out into the world. Now, in retrospect, now that the book is out in the world, I wish that I had offered more vulnerability mm. than I did. At the time, I was like just struggling to offer any. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in we're putting out this podcast in real time now where I think I'm actually pushing even a little bit deeper in terms of my own vulnerability as a storyteller and self-reflection as a storyteller and just as a human and, you know, yeah. as a white person in the world, like all of that, I think I'm pushing myself a little bit harder in the process mm -hmm. of making the podcast than I was able to while writing the book because I was scared. Yeah. I'm really interested in that, in that moment. You're open to expound on what you mean specifically on being more vulnerable, but you don't have to. I just, I'm really curious about the moment where you challenged yourself of like, oh, I wish I was. Like what pushed you to say, I wish I gave more or I wish I was more transparent in these ways or more honest? I was actually in, um, I co-facilitated with a group of activists in Durham, a movement podcasting workshop a oh. couple months ago. Um, well, there, there it is. Oh, yeah. You, like, y'all should, like, come to the next one and For sure. teach things. Sounds like a blast. Sure. Yeah. We would love to do that. Um, it's our jam. <laughs> yeah. And in that workshop, you know, it was all people who are, like, activists or in the movement in one way or another being just so self-reflective about, you know, our power as narrators and our power to frame other people's stories yeah. and what it means to take someone's story that isn't yours and put it out in the world. And, you know, we're all people who are doing that to some extent or another, telling our own stories, but also other people's. Yeah. And I think that there is space for that. You know, I don't, I don't believe that we should all just like only talk about our own experience, I think it, that there is a space for doing journalism, right? Like I still believe in committing acts of journalism, even if my like framework <laughs> I love that around framework. that yeah. is very different. Um, they should just also be treasonous, <laughs> acts of treason <laughs> and journalism at the same time. But all of these activists and movement podcasters in Durham, um, we were just talking and having a deep kind of conversation about just what it means for us to like take the mic, right? And mm. be a host of a show or a creator of a thing. And we kept coming back to this idea of vulnerability in terms of like opening ourselves up to, you know, not just like navel gazing, but like right. real self-reflection about our relative positions of power and privilege as well as oppression yeah. in order to make it possible for people to like, give us real and meaningful feedback and engagement as well as make it possible for the people who we're reporting on or the stories that we're telling there to like trust us, relate to us, um, and trust us with their stories and mm -hmm. sort of say, you know, none of us are without a stake in this, mm -hmm. but it requires some real vulnerability to talk about what that stake is, whether mm -hmm. it's because you're directly affected in the same way um, as the people that you're reporting on or because you're not. Right. You know? Yeah. So, from that personal positioning 
how are you positioning yourself now to the established institutions since you've like studied them, been more honest with yourself, established this critique? Because uh, even to get back in the person, like even a couple of weeks ago, we kind of had a conversation that kind of mirrors where we are right now, yeah. where I found myself again getting like surprisingly emotional talking about institutional and media. And I found myself getting surprisingly defensive in support of it. <laughs> yeah, which like was... Like both positions that neither of us thought we were going to have, and like, then all of a sudden it just... My position made sense, but the, the emotion yeah, of it uh, yeah. was a little surprising. Um, and so I guess to condense what I'm asking, but I compare the field a lot to education. And so the way I see schools, I see schools as harmful institutions, but I see teachers mostly as agents of healthy learning, right? So the the reporters, I think, the people that you probably know, I think are well-intended, and many of them are great actors in their little individual sphere. But the institutions are becoming irredeemable for me. And so, yeah, are they redeemable from your study, from now being out in the world, talking about Because, you know, specifically globally, like when we talk about the big institutions and how they support or invisibilize the harm the United States commits around the world, it becomes very intense for me. And so I, I see them as irredeemable. Are they redeemable for you? Hmm. I don't think that a capitalist for-profit model of news production and consumption is going to bring us the stories that we need <laughs> for liberation for our communities. So in that sense, my answer to your question is like, no then institutions are not <laughs> redeemable. That said, um, I really am a believer in like multiple tactics and in harm reduction, right? Mm. So we have the structures that we have now. What are the ways that we can work toward transforming them given where we are? Yeah. And I think that that's like always going to be a legitimate question. And, you know, for people who have a platform using it in the most ethical way possible and doing that harm reduction and that advocacy, I, I do think that that matters. Mm -hmm. But for me, the bigger picture is about like fundamentally transforming kind of the whole political economy yeah. of like stories, right? Because I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this underlying assumption that like a story can be a product <laughs> that is bought and sold, <laughs> yeah. you know? And I, I just, I don't see how we can like survive, whether it's with democracy or some other, yeah. <laughs> you know, our stories are our most system. sacred right. creations. Yeah. Of and the, the fact that like, that's an assumption that like, is not even being questioned, right? I mean, that's some of the status quo stuff that I just, that's so unsustainable in a like hmm. global big picture sense to think of stories as products hmm. um, and to think of like truth and facts as something that is, you know, that is content yeah. <laughs> for sale that I, I can't see how we can possibly um, get to liberation without really like undoing that. Mm -hmm. so mm, that's it <laughs> so we went back thank you let's, for helping me through let's go back so in that circle of movement podcast makers and in the conversations that you're having now we talked a little bit about the vulnerability that you're bringing on mic and, and in formulating the show one what else are you doing differently that feels like an embodiment of this newer politic and two do you call what you're doing now journalism 
I think as compared to when I was working in uh, more mainstream media, I'm more accountable to other people. Like (laughs) I'm closer to the people that I report on and write about and more accountable to them. So even in the process of writing the book, like I sent the book chapters to all of the people who I had interviewed and written about and had them read them and give feedback before they ever went out. And that even that direct type of accountability to sources was not something that was considered, you know, something we very much wouldn't do (laughs) when I worked in mainstream media. So that's very basic to me now to have more accountability toward my sources and the people that I report on, but also just like community accountability. Like I've been an activist for a really long time and connected to activist communities. And I think in some ways when I worked in more mainstream media, I was because of the conflict of interest policies and all of that stuff, you know, kind of removed from that and like couldn't be as openly accountable to like my values and to broader communities. And so I think that's probably the biggest difference. There's like the vulnerability and then just the, the accountability that I've put myself out there as somebody who's like standing for X, Y, Z, which means that people can then hold me accountable to that, you know? So like you say, you're a white person trying to work toward anti-racism. And I I wasn't saying that while I was working in mainstream media, but now I am. And that means that people can come to me and be like, okay, you could do better, yeah, you know? Mm -hmm. And that changes my relationship to the people that I'm talking to and about. Yeah. So that, that statement of your position that enables the space for accountability to even happen. Yeah. So we, we, we've got like this conflict of interest thing. We've got this objectivity thing. We, we hear about like journalism ethics as a whole as this category of things that people learn in J school or they learn in this training. And I don't think that anyone, myself included, as someone who is not a journalist, I have no idea what those are and what they mean. It seems like the thing that only journalists know and like hold very dear. And it's like this, uh, like, you know, Ten Commandments mm-hmm. of reporting that Socratic oath n- like nobody thing. else cares about and nobody else knows what they are. <laughs> so for people who are listening who are not trained in these five journalism schools, um, are there any other of these like things that are held as sacred and unchallengeable that you see the implications of them playing out in real time in ways that people might not be seeing if they don't know what these ideas are? Yeah, I think this relates directly to um, the accountability conversation, actually, that there's uh, an idea in mainstream journalism that in order to avoid conflicts of interest, that it's almost explicitly like we're not accountable to the people that we report on. And that because we're not, quote unquote, activists, that we shouldn't be thinking about the outcomes of our stories. And I think there are a lot of journalists now who um, are really pushing to like rethink and reframe that and talking about the ways in which journalism, especially national journalism, but also local, you know, um, can be very extractive and exploitive of the people that it's covering. And um, that's in some ways cooked into the objectivity (laughs) model because the idea is like you go and you do this story about this person and then you take that story away and you put it out to the world without ever like circling back to that person and finding out how did it affect them? What do they think of it? What does it mean to them? Um, And that you're not supposed to have this like empathy toward your sources because if you have too much empathy then you're like compromised as an objective journalist i know it sounds it doesn't sound like it makes any sense what, what, but. what's the like language or jargon or would it be rhetoric they, they use to express 
that idea, right? Like they don't say be apathetic. I'm sure they have a better detachment. Way. Detached. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Detachment. Object objective is another one. Mm-hmm. I mean that objectivity holds a lot of different meanings, mm-hmm. but that's one of them. Detachment. You know. But yeah, detachment is sort of the term that you might hear the most. Um, You know, there's also unbiased, um, nonpartisan, although that's a little more specific. And I actually personally, as a journalist, I'm a little bit more of a believer in nonpartisanship Mm -hmm. in the sense of like not being allied with political parties as a journalist. Um, I don't care for political parties myself. (laughs) Um, Although I think journalists who are allied with political parties should go ahead and be transparent about it. And, you know, that's If you're going to do your thing, just tell us you're doing your thing so we know (laughs) what we're dealing with. That's like... Uh People want to come for that thing. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, the other word is impartial. Mm -hmm. So you're not partial to your sources. You're not partial to anyone or anything in particular, which is like a ridiculous concept, right? Like nobody is impartial relative to um, power and oppression in the world. Um, But that is the way that it's talked about. And And that signals that you're not only telling part of the story. It's like if you're impartial, you're also telling everything, everything that they need to know. Right. You know, all all the news that's fit to print. That sounds like all the you know give you the world in twenty two minutes. Yeah, it should be holistic. If you're right. saying be impartial. Are there any mm-hmm. tenets that are still valuable for you? Yeah, I think a a really big one in terms of like what's taught in journalism schools and what is sometimes meant by objectivity is. Um, meticulousness, uh, rigor, fact-checking. <laughs> I was talking about acts of journalism earlier, like acts of journalism matter, and an act of journalism sometimes does inherently go beyond like telling just your own story, or your own perspective, or what you know. That's one act of journalism, but yeah. there are also acts of journalism that are about filtering through like big complex data sets and summing that up for people who don't have the time or the knowledge to do that to be able to access that, or that are about going and recording or documenting a story over here that people over here haven't heard before, yeah. you know? So journalism, I think, exists for a reason and that there are... Um, skills and tools around verification and seeking out multiple sources and multiple voices on on any given story um that that really do matter and just knowing that we're never doing that with this neutral frame yeah um we're always framing and it's important to like know what our frames are but the work itself and the um the rigor i think does still matter yeah So one of the things that when we were getting ready to step in here, I was thinking about a lot was the way that I've seen organizers already challenge these things in response to journalists coming in with expectations and then forcing them to shift it. So it's not just like all of a sudden those journalism school classrooms changed what they did or people are talking about it differently objectively. It's because like you talk about and like we've experienced the people who were quote being reported on required different things in order to have access to the story. So the first example that comes to mind, Dame, you want to tell it? Yeah, so um, were you familiar with the our Freedom Square activation in 2016 across from Home and Square? Um, are you familiar with the Home and Square story mm-hmm. and the torch? Um, so uh, after the death of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, there was a direct action partner between Let Us Breathe Collective and BYP 100 to do a blockade in front of Home and Square, uh, and then Let Us Breathe activated a vacant lot across the street that we turned into like a little encampment tent city uh, that was an abolitionist antithesis to carceral spaces. And so, you know, at first it was like a wild thing. It was kind of hot. You know, we were also protesting a Ed Burke policy on the Blue Lives Matter bill. So there was like a lot of news coverage 
local stuff, big stuff. It was like overwhelming for the first like, you know, five to seven days or whatever. And then also it was pulling away the people who needed to like be respondent and organized. So, you know, I'm trying to stop a kid from throwing a rock or make sure the ice is where it needs to be. And like I'm having 15 conversations which is valuable, right? Like we wanted to get out, but then it was becoming disruptive. So we had a, a mandate that in order for uh, a journalist to be able to talk to somebody or interview somebody, they had to do something. Help put up a table, go get some ice. Wash dishes. Wash dishes, pick up rock, you know, whatever is needed. There's always something going on, always something being cleaned. You have to participate in order to be a storyteller of this. And only one person like took issue with it. The what guy, was that conversation? Because it, was, it wasn't about us. I think somebody got shot or police had did something somewhere else. And Fox just wanted to come talk to somebody, like local Fox, mm-hmm. Fox, Fox 3 or 12 or whatever. Um, and that guy was real upset about it. So he like rolled up his sleeve and like threw a table and was like, all right. He was trying to pull like, oh, I can't. And then I was like, okay, yeah. and then we won't talk to you. And then he got like real upset. And then like, <laughs> did a thing. And, wow. Yeah. So that, that was our little policy. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. You're like making them pay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and contri- and contribute, contribute in a real way. Yeah, and know that they're than not pain. separate. Yeah. yeah. Are there other examples you've seen of whether that tangibly or kind of structurally organizing work formally shifting the requirements needed for people to be able to tell their story. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that in in um, the trans community. Like, hmm. I was recently involved with a group of people who a bunch of us were reached out to to comment for a story that about trans journalism that we didn't like the framing of. And we collectively agreed none of us are going to do it, <laughs> you know, unless they reframe or agree to kill the story. Um, the story was not killed, but we made it as a group of trans journalists very hard for them to report a bad story about trans journalism by just like <laughs> collectively being like, reframer, we're not going to talk mm-hmm. to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it continues to be kind of risky and complex to be out as a trans journalist right now. Um, but there are more and more of us and um, there's a lot of organizing going on in that mm-hmm. community to kind of solidify our like solidarity with trans communities more broadly Mm. as journalists and really, really push on the extremely poor (laughs) reporting on our communities (laughs) that has been going on for a long time. Would it be uh, useful or appropriate to talk about what was problematic in their framing and where the pushback was? Or was it just, was it like... Yeah, no, I can I can talk about that in the in the abstract. So um, basically, there's been this um, narrative that keeps being repeated in stories about about trans people and trans issues that um, trans people are sort of like the thought police, or, you know, the language police, and that mm-hmm. like we we won't let we won't let people um, question us without sending all of our Twitter trolls after them or whatever. Um, We're calling it the woke straw man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the woke straw man. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So if you if you Google, I was telling someone about this, another trans person, they were like, "Really? That doesn't even make sense." And I was like, "Just Google it. If you Google like trans, um, like thought police or trans, like language <laughs> police or something, you'll get a bunch of articles from right wing media that are like." 
this is a real like thing <laughs> um, that these like this powerful conspiracy of trans people is making sure that nobody speaks ill of us or whatever. It's like, well, all of your other powerful conspiracies were fucked up. This one's probably fucked up too. Anyone who they're saying they're all doing this. <laughs> it's funny how the people who are the most anti-language and thought police are the most pro-police. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. right. It's right. like, oh, now you don't like symbolic policing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you're, for, but you're for the guns. They're like, here I draw the line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Line. My freedoms are being infringed upon. <laughs> right, my, my freedom of speech. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... What about the freedom of me? <laughs> So there's been this whole narrative of like about detransitioners. I don't know if y'all have seen any of the articles no. about that, but in a very, very, very tiny percentage of cases, there are people who like medically transition who then change their mind, right? And some of them have gone to the media and that's been sort of spun up into a, a pretty like false story that there's sort of a a plague of like detransitioning and that the trans medical industry is like pushing people to transition early without being sure and blah, 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 blah. And of course it's a lot more nuanced than that, right? right? Like obviously people who um, transition and then decide that um, they're not actually trans are not trans. And so at that point, that's not actually a trans story. That's about somebody who has some other stuff going on. Right. But there are also a lot of trans people who like do some medical transition and then like change their mind or like right. question it or want to live in a different way and there's a really complex interaction between like daily trans experience and um, our physical bodies and appearance and the oppression that you can yeah. encounter when you begin to not pass as either male or female which right. can be a result of medical transition you know is like going from passing to not passing and being in a lot more danger and so we can't underestimate I think the complexity of that yeah. but there's been this like narrative out there that like detransitioning is this problem that we need to be careful not to like mm. push our kids into transition which is ridiculous no there aren't trans children who are being like pushed into transition mm. these are trans children who are like begging for access to these medical interventions yeah. right children and young people um and you know i had a trans surgery when i was 20 or whatever so i am one of these people mm -hmm. um <laughs> uh but the detransitioning articles have been just um raked across the coals by trans critics. And so then there's been a series of articles about people who feel uh, really hurt by being raked across the coals hey, by the, trans the critics. The people we harmed are telling us we harmed them. God damn it, what is this? <laughs> and this so unfair. I, I shit you not, that was the topic of this article that we all did. was about the trans response to these articles that were mischaracterizing trans people's experiences. Yeah, although the way that they phrased it was, it was about how you can't write about trans issues without risking offending people and being blacklisted and blah, blah, hmm. blah, 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 blah. Which like, come on, trans people don't have the power to blacklist yeah. people. Give me a break. <laughs> Hmm. You know, yeah, we're the ones who are, a bunch of us are blacklisted, right? right. Like, yeah. <laughs> for, like for real, like not right. able to write for, I mean, I'm one of the people who's not able to write or contribute to various outlets because of my advocacy, you know? Yeah. I for real have had career consequences for my identity and what I've stood up for. And hmm. these people are like, oh, I got yelled at on Twitter. Yeah. It feels bad. And the trans thought police got me, mm -hmm. you know? So I think it's, it's like one a misunderstanding of consequences, right? Mm -hmm. And I think also, just like, and I feel this is the case in so many instances where people who hold closer relationships to power than the people who they're talking about, mostly what they're saying is don't do to me what I did to you. 
Yeah. Like the, the this like karma thing. And mm-hmm. I think this informs so many interactions between people with different relationships to power is like, I know what could be done to me because I've benefited from the doing of it. And what I'm trying to erect are barriers to make sure that like, I don't get my comeuppance basically. Like there's this great joke about like white people cross the street when there's a black person coming, not because they're afraid of black people, but because they're afraid of karma. It's like, oh, there's like karma coming at me right now. I better like get away from this karma arriving. <laughs> and that's what the fear is, is I think in a lot of these cases. So in, the, in that instance, it was collective work between the people who were being interviewed. When you were on the other side of that coin as the person doing the interviewing, how would you and your colleagues have responded to like a group of quote, like subjects of articles banding together and making demands of you about how the article should be written? Hmm. So I never had a thing like that happen to me. I was really astounded being on the side of it that I that I was by the fact that that didn't lead the author to either kill the story or like really take pause, you know, and sort of say, if all of the representatives of the marginalized community that you're writing about are like, we're not on board with this. Yeah. What kind of arrogance does it take to then still run with mm-hmm. that story? And of course, yeah, <laughs> what like, about your that happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I haven't had that quite, I, I hadn't had that happen to me from the other side where I was the the journalist, you know? Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, it, it sounds like you're raising up some of like what I wrote about in the book with my own coverage of Black Lives Matter and yeah. writing about John Crawford III, who was killed by a white police officer inside of a Walmart in Ohio just a few days before uh, Michael Brown was killed, mm-hmm. and how because of Black Lives Matter and because of Michael Brown and because of the whole movement that arose, like I really had to reflect on how I had contributed as a white journalist and editor to um, like not digging in and not doing the reporting that was necessary around John Crawford III's death until there was this kind of activism and political pressure to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't direct pressure, though, on our radio station. Yeah. It was more of like the moment, you know, the, zeit- the zeitgeist in yeah. that moment of like suddenly everyone was talking about Black Lives Matter and Ferguson. And because suddenly everyone was talking about that, then that meant that suddenly we were really covering it. And then, you know, over time, I began to think about like how messed up that was that Hmm. like this young black man's death, like didn't matter, wasn't going to matter from my perspective as like the managing editor at the time at WYSO until this movement like Mm -hmm. pushed and said, this does matter. And so just thinking like, how do I want to do that differently next time I'm faced with a situation like that? And will I even be able to see past my own biases and assumptions as a white person in order to do that? You know, or is that a question of like, there's too many white people in this newsroom and the Mm -hmm. newsroom needs to really look different. So there's a lot of like reflections after the fact that Mm. happened there. Have you developed any metrics or evaluative processes to wrestle toward with that the how do i see the things i don't see basically right have you made any progress in that in that work cuz we could use some help <laughs> <laughs> oh we could all use help yeah, right yeah. i mean i think metrics no i think that is where the like transparency stuff comes into play and this idea of like allowing ourselves to be held accountable by publicly claiming some values and sort of saying, you know, here's what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. And then that allows people to be like, hey, you're not doing it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're not doing it well enough or whatever. Um, But yeah, I wouldn't say I've established any sort of like systems per se. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly with our podcast, The View From Somewhere podcast, it's 
me, I'm the host and the and the writer. And a lot of it is stories that come from the book that I wrote, but also like doing new interviews and bringing on different sources. And then the producer is Ramona Martinez. And it's mostly the her, her and I collaborating really, really closely. Um, but we have a couple of editorial consultants who are both black women who have a pretty particular like political frame and a lot, a lot of skills to sort of like push us. And so like one way that we've like built in accountability is like, we're going to pay people who have these skills who also come from directly affected identities. Cause we're writing a lot and talking on the podcast a lot about black people and about coverage of black people. And Ramona and I are both not black. Ramona's mm -hmm. a Latina woman and I'm a white transgender person. And so I think like building in accountability into sort of our internal editorial process has been one way of doing that. But it's not the only thing, you know, and I stay hopeful that people will continue to like trust us enough to give us feedback when we are mm -hmm. off base or getting it wrong. Mm. Where did the uh, the language of the title come from? The View From Somewhere? The View From Somewhere. So there's this philosophy book mm. called The View from Nowhere mm. <laughs> <laughs> that came out in the 70s that is about objectivity and kind of the non-existence on a, at like a metaphilosophical level of objectivity. Mm. But that view from nowhere concept has been critiqued a lot in the, the world of journalism. Ironically, the place that I worked, Marketplace, where I was fired from, had said, you know, we don't believe in the view from nowhere. And the view from nowhere is like conceived as, you know, the neutral or impartial yeah. or detached voice. Um, we're about like bringing our personality and perspective right up until our personality until, and perspective critiques white supremacy and right. transphobia. Because it is like true. That. Like even Profit. tonally on that show, it is so much like, hey, we're hanging out. It's like a cool little fun. We're just us. Hang, we're like talking about cool money. Yeah. yeah. We're cool people who are like pro-capitalism um, <laughs> and stuff like that. Or are we cool? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was a little bit of a reference to that sort of encounter with hmm. Marketplace, but also more generally just like. I think that each of our view from from somewhere and our subjective view and subjective truths are like valuable and beautiful. And mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of situate the book in that and in this like history of critique of mm -hmm. um, that idea of a view from nowhere being mm -hmm. a thing. Because there is no view from nowhere. Yeah. That's just the status quo, white, cis, male <laughs> perspective. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we've talked kind of around the firing and, I, you know, in talking about the, that transphobic article coming out like mentioned like no i've been blacklisted for real and so from us like kind of where we pers our perspective you're kind of like a hero like there's maybe some martyrdom like that's an exciting narrative right but is there any anger or resentment or i don't want to use the word bitterness but you know that's not cool like that you know like that's that's, <laughs> that's not, not like okay treating like a person, you know yeah. to, and not only like i lost this job but now i am dislocated from the, the center of my industry is it in, empowering do you, do you do you like being on the other side um or is there something about it that that there's still some like wound or frustration yeah i think it's both i mean i think the work that i'm doing now is more aligned with my like values right and more aligned with my communities than the work that i was doing when i worked in public radio and so i'm grateful for mm -hmm. that at the same time when all of this went down i wasn't like trying to get fired or <laughs> hoping to not have this job that i loved anymore it was my dream job i loved the people that i worked with you know i trusted them 
And so I think some of the pain, I wouldn't call it bitterness, but some of the painful parts of that had to do with like realizing that there were really a very limited number of people who were going to put their own careers and self-interest at risk to like stand up for what they knew was right Mm -hmm. in a moment like that. And that these institutions really figure out ways to like scare us and incentivize us not standing in solidarity with each other. And so for me, coming from like a community activism and solidarity kind of framework, mm-hmm. realizing how many of the people that I worked with were like, we agree with you, but we're not trying to like take any risks to talk about that. That is so disillusioning. And it is like you, when you have a room full of people who, again, they might not always do it, but at least they're committing to it. So then you can be like, hey, you missed the mark here. But yeah, most people just really are not willing to lose things. But it's such an interesting space because they love the solidarity story, though. So the, Yeah. <laughs> like, they love articulating and radio voicing what solidarity looks like. And that journalists stand on the side of the people and are, are in opposition to power and all this. Uh, that's another piece, actually, Before, and I want to be respectful of your time also, but kind of hand-in-hand, hand, I think, with these, like, formalized ethics is this, like, valorization of the position. I don't actually really know the story of where that comes from. What are the ways that this, like, we are virtuous in our positioning and we are standing in relation to power, how does that positioning make it easier for them to not face the contradictions within and the conflicts of interest within their practice? Mm -hmm. I mean, someone that I was pretty close with in my job right around the time that I was getting fired, he was like, just take your blog post down because the platform that you have here working at Marketplace and the number of people that you can reach with the stories that you do just like matters so much more. Hmm. He, you know, still works on on that big platform. And I think in a sense, like has to believe that that is the thing that matters, right? still there. In order to justify all of the compromises that he's making, moral and ethical compromises that he's making in order to maintain and sustain that position. Hmm. And I think to me, you know, I'm grateful for my experience of like being a trans person and being in an activist community and in a world of sort of community and solidarity for so much of my life that I could look at a statement like that and be like, you know, millions of people are going to hear me. That's true. I am not convinced that that is more important than aligning myself with my community and my values, you know? And what are you saying when they hear you? You know, that's right. kind of the, the question. Right. Is it more important to hear me or hear, or for fewer people to hear what I have to say? Yeah. And those are like deep life questions, yeah. right? About like, how are you going to engage with the world? And are you going to like get what you can for you or like do what you can for your community or do what you can for your community and other communities that you're not a part of, you know, and we're all making those choices in like micro and macro ways. And it's a huge privilege to even like have choice and talk about Mm -hmm. choice. I mean, I feel very aware that like me being like, Oh, you know, I made this like choice was also about like, I had a safety net and a supportive uh, family, you know, Mm -hmm. family of origin that could like support me financially Mm -hmm. in the case of like, I got fired, you know, Mm -hmm. like that kind of stuff. Like I was bringing a lot of privilege to that quote unquote choice. And Mm -hmm. the whole concept of choice is really complicated too, but certainly at like, yeah, at a micro and a macro level, I feel like we are all faced with those kinds of choices around like, how do we align our lives with our values? And so I'm, yeah, 
grateful to have a life where I'm able to like strive for that. <laughs> but yeah, the valorization of the the individual sort of change maker journalist, I think that there's probably a lot of history there yeah. <laughs> that we could go into that is very like masculinist and, and white and kind yeah. of um, messed up and strange. But I think to the extent that that idea is still out there today, it's like really just being used to shield journalists from accountability to the communities that they're doing a crap job of covering and i'm over it (laughs) (laughs) so i so you know read the book everybody listen to the podcast we didn't go into a lot of detail on the actual blog piece that provoked all of this uh but i'm really curious and when you explain the title of this you know a place from or view from nowhere theory that is in name being subverted but then being reinforced in practice, how was that articulated or reconciled within the space? Does, does that question make sense? Like, I, I hear you tell the story of like when you get there on day one, they tell you cut all these ties and this is how we get down. And you kind of played in that framework. Um, and then you had a piece about journalism and they're saying you're critiquing us. And like, what were their grounds, mm-hmm. I guess? Yeah, for for firing me mm-hmm. over that blog post. Um, They said that the blog post could be perceived as uh, biased. And the particular concern was with that I had said that Donald Trump um, benefits from white supremacy, which was like, (laughs) thank you for just laughing at that. Yeah, it's like sad, funny, sad, but like. And I had been really careful with my words that, you know, I didn't even didn't say Donald Trump is a white supremacist, right? Like benefits from white supremacy. That is factual. Yeah. As, as does every white person. Like also, <laughs> right. like, yeah, exactly, like a, exactly. Like white like, supremacists say it, like avowed, <laughs> like named, in, yeah. like we are supporting. <laughs> we are his we base. Are support. Yeah, the yeah, people yeah, who are absolutely. not afraid, who are asking to be called white supremacists, are saying we are benefiting, and he is benefiting from us. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's so, like misquoting them. <laughs> yeah, but I think what you they, believe them. That sounds like bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think probably right that does, it sounds like bullshit. I try not to um speculate mm-hmm. <laughs> on like Good what journalism. was really going on for the people who made the decision to yeah. fire me, but it was clear that there was some kind of fear or some kind of hypothetical that went beyond what had actually yeah. happened, right? And I I don't underestimate the possibility of uh unconscious bias as mm-hmm. as well around my trans identity and what it meant and what it felt like for them to have this trans person sort of like laying all this stuff out mm-hmm. um, without the sort of palatability that mm-hmm. we're generally right. expected to perform. Yeah. Have you seen any perform shifts? Because this is during the primary, right? Uh, this was after he was... This was during, after the inauguration. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I was about to say, there was like a shift from like the coverage of the primary and this being like this kind of entertaining circus show that people didn't see as a reality and like the Hillary Clintonite assumption that she was just going to come and win because she's anointed. I, I noticed there, then the, the hashtag resistance happened after inauguration. And then I think Charlottesville was the real provocation of everybody, like a lot of virtue signaling. So not actually addressing or working to transform or oppose structures specifically white supremacy, racial capitalism at large, but just like, oh, now this looks really bad and we are unequivocally the good guys no matter what's happening. Um, Have you seen any performed or actual shifts 
Because that sentence now, I don't think, would be controversial. That Donald Trump benefits from white supremacy. Yeah, it feels like a very timed response is what I, is what I think I'm trying to get at. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, I haven't followed too closely the rhetoric coming Good. out of the like places <laughs> places where I, you know, marketplace is part of American public media. And um, I just kind of tune, tune all that out, you know. <laughs> True. Um, so I honestly don't really know certainly the the i mean i agree with you broadly that like there yeah there were a lot of people mostly black and brown people like at the time of the election and the inauguration who were saying like hey this dude's a white supremacy you know this is and now there are more people saying it and sort of and there's an i told you so opportunity there that seems like it should be taken like righteously you know um but yeah i don't really know in terms of the context that i worked in that sounds good for your health yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, one of the things I really didn't want to do at this time was do the like, uh, we're, we're, we're an anti-devil's advocate podcast here. That's not what we do here. I do think one of the things that you address in the book is like how you can respond to the like, well, what do we do about the threat against journalism right now? You know, part of why they're doubling down on these like ethics so hard is because that feels like, you know, the shaky foundation. That's all that they have to stand on. So I am not, this is me saying I'm not the devil's advocate. I'm not asking that question, but I know that you are receiving that question in certain ways because I actually saw someone ask it to you. How do you answer that question of like, well, we need to be protecting journalism right now the way it is because it's under attack? Right. Yeah. And I think embedded in that question is often a set of assumptions that like there was some past point where journalism was trustworthy and people trusted it. And there was like this healthy relationship between journalism and the public and everybody tuned in. It's a very like MAGA knowledge for a way of thinking about it, even of like, we're going back to this fictional past. Yeah. And make journalism great again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. Um, that fictional past was like a time when it was white men only in newsrooms Mm -hmm. and the heyday of trusted journalism that quote unquote, everybody read or everybody watched or everybody trusted. Of course that, that everybody wasn't actually everyone. It was like white middle-class and upper middle-class people almost exclusively and male voices almost exclusively. And so I think there is no like trusted past of journalism to think about going back to. And that in that sense, we're in a moment of great kind of opportunity for journalism. You know, there are all these different types of platforms and modes of distribution, whether it's movement podcasts like this one or all of the sort of range of possibilities that we have for publishing and self-publishing and small-scale publishing online. I think those are are great things to the extent that we can maintain like free and open access to those platforms that like a proliferation of multiple voices and multiple types of outlets and voices and outlets that are accountable directly to the communities that they slash we are covering is like a beautiful byproduct of this sort of confusing moment that we're in. And so, you know, media fragmentation is a, is a source of a lot of, um, hand-wringing among I think particularly like white cis male sort of leaders in the in the media world to me media fragmentation is like a good thing that has opened up more space for more different kinds of people to uh, have a voice and the hand-wringing is a byproduct of privilege but the reality is that we do need to answer sort of tough questions about what are we going to do to like maintain and protect um, what is possible with all of these platforms now and to 
to build new types of organizations that are grounded in grassroots communities and grounded in um, in trust. And that's, we talk at the organization I work at now, Press On, a lot about movement journalism. And that's a really big part of what we mean by movement journalism is that it's kind of a, a journalism that's structured more the way that movements are structured, right? Like ground up and accountable to the grassroots instead of top down. And so that's sort of where, where I see that going. And um, I think there's a lot of possibility there for, I wouldn't necessarily say rebuilding, but for building trust and for healing, you know, relationships that have been really broken between the idea of who the public is and the idea of who the journalist is. Yeah, that's beautiful. And so in that tangible uh, imagined future, are there any things, whether that's like on the industry quote or like structure side or just in terms of how people relate to each other be in that relationship between quote, like subject and journalist that for people who are doing this work now, you'd say like, hey, here's something to keep in mind when you turn the microphone on to talk to someone, a best practice or something like that. I'm really having to think about that because I think there's a lot of potential answers. You can share a couple or I can reframe as like, what's something that you're doing now that you wouldn't have done in your previous role when you turn the microphone on that feels liberatory to you? I think the thing that's coming to mind for me, this isn't so much a best practice as a mindset, believe that it's possible for people to change, (laughs) believe that change is possible. And I think, you know, I've expended so much energy in this book and podcast critiquing objectivity. And one of the things I realized quite a ways into that research and that critique was that one of the problems is that it assumes that the world is sort of static and that people are static, right? And that it's possible to like, sort of take a picture or capture a moment that's just objectively, this is what this looks like, or this is what this person is, or this is what this moment is. And that in fact, reality in the world is like ever changing and sort of prismatic. And and I imagine it like like deep sea diving, like the deeper that you go, Hmm. sort of the darker and like hazier and more confusing it gets, but that's actually like what it is to go deep. I have this image now of like truth and truth telling and storytelling that is about embracing the possibility of change and the ambiguity that comes into every story when you're assuming that change is possible and that mm. what is true now might not be true tomorrow or might not be true in another moment. And I think that relates to like social justice and idealism and sort of the mm-hmm. utopian visions for the world yeah. and that like if we're just reporting on the world as it is and we have some idea that you can just like take a picture and capture that and that's objectivity, then we're feeding into a sort of cynicism about what is possible. So I know that's a little abstract. No, I, you know, <laughs> it's like we're, we're not taking pictures, we're painting paintings yeah. or we're making art. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm just, I love that because uh, I try to center that in my life. Are there any things that have reaffirmed that belief for you recently? Because particularly in the micro, it feels like human behavior it's so difficult for people to intentionally alter. What has reaffirmed your belief in in folks' capacity to change? I did a story for the Nancy podcast Mm. about my grandmother who died a couple years ago. Her name was Sarah McCrory, and she was a white woman born and raised in Columbia, South Carolina, lived her whole life there. And she really, really struggled with my sexuality and gender identity and especially with my gender identity she was 96 when she died so that means she was somewhere in her (laughs) 70s when i came out as trans 
And this is someone who, you know, was raised in a like wealthy white family in the Jim Crow South. And um, I think from the 50s or 60s on, she pushed herself so hard to like be outside of her comfort zone. And it was hard. Like she talks about, you know, all white people are racist. Like we were raised in a racist society and that makes us racist. But she would say that and then she would say, okay, so what am I going to do about it? Mm. And she did the same thing around gender and my trans identity. Like she was like, this is hard for me. I don't get it, Mm. but I'm going to try. And so I made a recording of her in her mid 90s, like trying on for the first time my pronouns and my... (laughs) name that I had chosen. And, you know, it was a little late. I'd been out for quite a while (laughs) at that point. And I, you know, I wish that um, she would have come around sooner, but like she was old, (laughs) like living in an Episcopal retirement community with a bunch of like Trump supporting white people who look down on people who are on welfare and all this kind of stuff. And my grandma's out there like arguing with them and getting, you know, like getting up from the table and walking off and like (laughs) whatever. Like, and so she knew that her life was contradictory and that she was never going to like, you know, like you mentioned virtue signaling that she was never going to like have all the virtue or like be all of the good person or be the best, you know, anti-racist or the best trans ally. But she kind of like was struggling through those contradictions right up until she died. (laughs) And so interviewing her was like, that was an example for me of someone modeling the possibility of changing as a person, even while acknowledging for herself, like, I hold some beliefs that I really don't feel good about that I might never be able to fully rid myself of. And she like died with that knowledge, yeah. you know? Um, the attempt. The attempt. Yeah. I have a friend, Danny West, who often says like, do the next right thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, just make the next right choice. Even when try. your entire worldview doesn't support it. Yeah. yeah. Or good. even when you're not sure. And that's the power of family, right? Is that, these deeper connections will pull us or push us mm-hmm. in ways that we would remain stagnant otherwise. Mm-hmm. All right, let's check out real quick. Let's, let's do it. What's a, uh, our checkout is we go around, we say a thought, an idea, something that came up in the conversation that's sticking with us. A feeling. Or just how you're feeling right now. You have a place I, to yeah, start? Yeah, I, I can go first. Again, just like recognizing how deeply personal this issue is for me for some reason. I, I, I think I need to reflect further on, on why... I've been finding an emotional response to these structural dynamics, particularly media, journalism, and the dispersion of information. And so, yeah, so, you know, this moment, I think my reflection is, I think institutional media is trying to frame this moment as a crisis of journalism. And I think this conversation reemphasizes how a lot of this has been a creation of journalism. It, It was not because people were unprepared that this Trump phenomenon happened. There was a a complicit model uh, that one ignored people's oppression, right? So a big part, I think, of the Trump base is white folks who've been rejected or or not cared for by white supremacy. Um, And a lot of times their issues get ignored and that left a vacuum for it to be pushed towards rage. And I think Institutional journalism is a big part of that. So yeah, all of, I think, where we are right now that people are so dismayed about, a lot of it is a creation, not a crisis. Hmm. I'm thinking a lot about how the expectations of you stepping into that room that you'd never been in before at BZ that first day, 
and it being like, if you want to be, and this is not, again, it's not about those are bad people, but it's like, these are the expectations in this room. And if you want to be in this room and you want to not just have access, but like participate in this field and in this art, create because it's a creative art, right? These are the expectations of what that means to do that right. And the limitations is that puts on someone who wants to participate and is just getting their foot in the door. And then that sets the the tone for everything. And then you have to unlearn it. It's like so many other things that we learn and then we have to do the work of unlearning. It's like, man, if we could have just jumped over that step and started at the unlearned, <laughs> then we could be making so many more things by now. How about you? What's sticking with you or how are you feeling right now? For some reason, this phrase is coming to mind that Miriam Kaba often says. The patron saint of Ergo. <laughs> the patron saint of Ergo. That's great. <laughs> Hope is a discipline. Yeah. And I think of that all the time because I feel like often when I'm doing these things, I'm out on tour talking to people. I'm like talking myself out of cynicism every day. <laughs> like I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefulness. It's, it's yeah. totally a thing. You know, um, but uh, I think there's some part of me that wants that, um, m- you know, maybe just is cynical, but that I really agree with Miriam that hope is a discipline and it's like about how you show up and what you do. And so, you know, and talking to you all and just talking to people in general about all of this stuff, it's like, it's part of my discipline of like staying hopeful and telling myself and others a story that like change is possible. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And it's a good reminder of that like active work. The the last thing we're going to do. You're going to fuel this cynicism. It's (laughs) important. I can't believe this is what we're going to do after this, but it's important. Damon, you want to set it up? No, you got it. So this is the game we play to end the show. We believe in accountability. And one of the ways that accountability can work is through the process of beef. Now, the 20th century as a whole at large ran a muck. 1900 to 1999. There was some mucking, <laughs> some muck raking, some mucking Fucking all around. Wild. <laughs> so that was bullshit. That's out of control. <laughs> out of control. So we were inviting you today in this here moment to start beef with the 20th century. Any person, event, location phenomenon, fashion statement, political policy, anything that happened between 1900 and 1999. R&B singer. (laughs) Beef with the 20th century, Lewis Wallace, go. (laughs) Oh, I have so much beef with the 20th century. Um, I knew you would, this would like hit you right in the, you're ready 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 to go. (laughs) Yeah. Like how much time do we have? But I feel the first thing that came to mind, the nineties and the era of rapid mass expansion of mass incarceration and the political and rhetorical lies that were told during that era. That was Mm -hmm. my era of coming Mm -hmm. of age Mm -hmm. about criminality and safety and just how we're still living with the consequences of that and the contribution of, you know, the Clintons to that and Democratic Party and like white people and whiteness at large. Journalism. Journalism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I have a lot of beef with that. Mm -hmm. The 94 crime bill is getting some salt. That's like, that has become the the stalwart. The R. Kelly of 
the 20th century. <laughs> that might have been too close. But, Oof. <laughs> but R. Kelly was like the what got named in the R and B beef R&B, uh, yeah, a lot. Yeah. And Bill Clinton is like he's been getting he's getting like, some like four or five of them. Yeah, and we're only like twelve in. So <laughs> uh, wow, yeah, yeah. I guess there's the aspect of like living memory. That's too, true. Yeah, that's yeah, like yeah. I'm 35, and that was just like formative and I was being fed this like idea that these were good people politically right. and this was a he good time. He plays saxophone and, and likes like, Michael Jordan. Blah, blah, blah. You know, and meanwhile it was like zero tolerance in, in schools and yeah. um, all this kind of stuff. Three that, strikes are out. Three strikes, yeah. So that's Super a solid predator. one. Any other beef you want to throw in there before we get out of here? Yeah, I want to. I want to get one last jab in at the uh, the rise of objectivity in journalism because nice. that's that's very twentieth century yeah. in my opinion. Um, so like nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. Is there a figurehead to the word that were? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name any um, individual names, but I'll just say like. No sooner had objectivity become this kind of part of the code of ethics for journalism in the 30s than um, journalists started to do labor organizing. Mm. And the bosses at that time were like, oh, we have an idea. How about we accuse the labor organizing journalists of being biased and not objective and sort of wielded <laughs> that against them? So the Associated Press was actually, as far as I've been able to find the the first time that somebody was fired for quote unquote not being objective hmm. um, was actually somebody who was trying to organize a labor union at the Associated Press in 1935. Wow. And so, yeah, beef with the AP. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I'm for that. Solid. That's easy Solid. beef. Associated punches. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming through much and uh, sharing your thoughts and your time with us. How can folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found? Sure. So I'm on Twitter at Lewis Pants. It's L E W I S and then pants like the clothes. And the podcast is at viewfromsomewhere.com. And it's truly excellent, y'all. Make sure you listen to it. And once you get there, you can find everything about the book and everything else that I'm up to at viewfromsomewhere.com. Read the book. We're at Ergo Radio. Damon underscore AF. At Ergo Kiss. And we'll be back next week with another person reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. This episode of Ergo is sponsored by Backblaze. Get unlimited computer backup for Macs or PCs for just six bucks a month. Backup your docs, music, photos, videos, drawing, podcasts, projects, all your data. Restore files anywhere you have internet. Even if you're off the grid, they can overnight a hard drive to you with your backup on it. Over 40 billion files restored. That's a lot of files. Get yourself a free fully featured trial at backblaze.com slash cpc. Make sure you visit backblaze.com slash CPC so they know where you came from and continue to support us here at Ergo. Go there, play with it, start protecting yourself from potential bad times. Start today.